Hey, how are you? Uh, this is Dave Broadbeck. I'm going to get technical doctor Dave Broadbeck. And I'm going to tell you about, in the following lecture, Psychology 2606, or Biology 2606, whatever you prefer. Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the Winter 2024 term. Don't say 2024. Stop talking like that. You never said 1,993. Of course, most of you weren't born yet, but we didn't. So, anyway. Uh, right, so here's the lecture. Hope you enjoy it. If you don't, don't really care, as long as you learn something. So let's talk about next two classes of cells and genes. We do cells today. We'll talk about genes next time. Um, I talked a little bit about it. When I say we touched on it, I think I said there are neurons and arterial cells, but as far as I went last time. So, uh, we talked about it a little bit. Let's go into it in detail. That's the point today. So we'll talk about cells and nothing else today. So we'll talk about neurons and glial cells, much more about neurons and glial cells. Uh, and then we'll talk about uh, genetics and behavior on Tuesday. Okay. So neurons are the basic information processing unit of the nervous system. Okay? So the basic information processing unit of the nervous system. can probably control behavior and store information on their own. We tend to think of networks of neurons working together, and that's certainly true, but it's also the case that single neurons can control behavior and, and, and store information. Okay. It's probably more common, though, especially in a complex animal like us, or really anything that's invertebrate at least, and a lot, most inverts I would think too, really, insects, things like that. Um, we're talking usually more about networks of neurons. You know, so not just a single neuron firing or not, but neurons firing collectively, one firing another. I talked the other day about the reward circuit, for example. It's also what we talked about so much in, and in my other class in neuropharmacology. Um, that circuit it's the whole circuit working that, 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 that when it works, you feel good. Okay? It's almost certainly the case that the way we recognize objects uses networks. Right, so the way we recognize objects probably even uses networks. Let's, let's just, let me give you an example here. I'm gonna just clear this for a second. So we can, that's perfect. Okay, so if we're gonna recognize a red triangle, when we see a red triangle, what characteristics would we need to, to, to determine something's a red triangle? And let's just start with a triangle. How are we gonna determine something's a triangle? Three sides. Pardon me? Three sides. Three sides, okay. So it's gonna have to, we're gonna have to have something that recognizes sides and if there's three of them. We probably need them, let's change colors here. So we need some cell, we're going to call it a three cell, that detects three sides. But that's a level above sides. So we need something that recognizes sides. We probably need a cell that recognizes that 
and one that recognizes that, and one that recognizes that, because that's triangle. They all have the synapse onto this cell, and when they all fire that cell at the same time, we go, that's probably a triangle. There's other things, though, that have to be there, too. What else? Let's not worry about the color yet. You're right, though. Let's not worry about the color yet. Just as a triangle, please. The points. Well done. So we're going to need probably that, that, and little like that. And when they're recognized, whoops, that should be, let's change that here where it goes. They're going to recognize, they're going to say that's a three-point triangle. So it's a, it's a three and a P. Oh, they have to then both fire the, the triangle neuron. Now, then we get into color. We need color, right? We need a red neuron. But, so yeah, well, we need one to just recognize as red. So we're going to put that guy over here. And we'll put the color over here. Okay, so we have a red neuron. But it has to know if it's the background or the foreground, doesn't it? Okay, so we need, uh, we're going to put that. We're going to get a space. That's B, B for background, foreground, okay? So now this, this one and this one and this one and that one all have to fire together for us to say we have a red triangle. And that all has to happen roughly at the same time. Roughly. This is probably how things work. Note I said probably. We don't really know. But this is almost certain, almost certainly how it works. We know there are cells that detect line orientations, all these other things. All these cells that the, the bunch of us here have figured out, they all actually exist. Um, they're in different parts of your brain, but they all do exist. Okay. So like I said, at, our, at the last point of this slide here, It's usually more likely networks. That'd be networks. But there are things that are cells that, 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 that can store individual information too. Okay. And I mean, obviously it's way more complicated than I just showed and that we just came up with, but I think that gets the idea. That also is a nice example of that hierarchical and parallel thing. There's a hierarchy, you've got to recognize this, 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 and this, but all these things are happening at once. That's parallel. Okay. That's a neuron. I don't know. It's my favorite neuron. It's a nice, easy neuron to understand. That's a very straightforward looks like a sensory neuron to me. Uh, it's the classic neuron you see in Ecrosuck. Right? We've got a nucleus. We've got the impulse direction coming down here. We've got through the, the dendrites. Then there's a cell body through the axon and out to the next neuron. And then we have this is that. So these things here, those are myelin. <laughs> trying to remember how to spell myelin. Those are myelin. I assume that's how you spell it because that looks vaguely correct. So myelin covers parts of the axon and it speeds transmission. Okay. Oh, screw that. Oh, uh, it's like. I think of it like insulation on a wire. It isn't insulation on a wire. You can overdo analogies. But it's kind of like that. Okay, whoops. 
back here. So it's kind of like that. It's kind of like the insulation on a wire. There are gaps. There are gaps in the insulation. So those gaps have a name. They are called the nodes, N-O-D-E-S, of Ranvier. R-A-N-V-I-E-R. Unless you're American, then they're the nodes of Ranvier. I don't even know if that's true. I'm just like saying that to each other. I'm sure they say, they probably don't say Ranvier like I do, but that's, they probably say Ranvier or something. And that's close enough. It took me 20 years to learn how to make an R at the back of my throat. So, oh, it's not easy to talk like that. All right. Here's some amazing neuron facts. Uh, you're born with almost all your neurons. Almost all the neurons, most of the neurons you have in your central nervous system, you had 18 or 20 or 19 or 23 or I don't know, 58 years ago. Almost all of them started out, in fact, most of your neurons were before you were born. They were in, in, in uh, utero. Cool, right? It's hooking them up that, that matters to, different, to each other and to different systems. It's not so much the fact that you have neurons. Right. Neurons change with experience. This shouldn't surprise us. They, uh, new connections are made. Uh, they change how, how often they fire with experience, things like that. And if they don't make any connections at all, they die. So if your neurons don't synapse onto other neurons, within a certain period, and this certain period depends on the neuron, so some of those neurons, when they connect, uh, have to, they connect very early. Right, so the neurons that do, well, language ones are great. Because when you're born, you're born with the ability to make every sound of every human language. You just don't need to make most of them. Because when your mother, when you learn your mother tongue, or tongues, if you learn more than one at once, um, You make certain sounds, hear certain sounds, and that makes connections. The ability to make those other sounds disappears because you don't need them. So this is one of the reasons it can be very difficult. For example, and the example I often use is the fact that, you know, uh, in Canada, if you're an Anglophone, you learn French in school, and everybody knows the French word for red is what? Rouge. Yeah, except it's rouge, it's not rouge. Rouge isn't a word. No one's going to go to, I don't know, Quebec City and you say that something's rouge and someone's not going to look at you and go, look, I have no idea what you're talking about. They'll know you mean rouge. But it's hard to make that noise for someone who didn't have that in their language. And this is why we end up with accents for second, third, fourth languages we learn later in life. Because you're using the wrong phonemes. You're using the ones from your language. Or even if you have even accents within a language, right? We have in Canada pretty good uh, variation in accents, right? It's not huge, but it's it's noticeable. So you can tell when people are from out east, right? You can tell if they're from Newfoundland versus, say, Nova Scotia, or I can because I live in Newfoundland. Um, 
you can tell with people from Northern Ontario because they all talk like this, eh? Um, you want to get on your snow machine? Uh, so even that is because certain neurons died because you never used them. That's where accents come from. And that's what's very hard to learn perfectly a language and speak it like a native speaker. Even if the, your grammar is perfect and your vocabulary is great, you'll still have a little bit of an accent. That's no big deal. My wife speaks better English than I do, writes better than I do. And she started speaking English when she was 18. So uh, she's in Quebec City. Um, so we need these. Neurons are extremely expensive to maintain. So this is insufficient. You all look so sad that some of your neurons died. Now you couldn't have any kind of accents. You can learn the language or something. Don't worry about it. You didn't need those. You don't need them. And they're expensive. Metabolically expensive. So little die. Screw them. I don't have 3D vision. I don't have binocular vision. One of the many, there's at least six things wrong with my eyes, and that's one of them. Thing is, those cells, a, we'll talk about this actually next time, but those, the cells in my occipital lobe that would detect how far apart my eyes are to determine, because you know, you guys can all immediately determine how far away something is by looking at it, right? Is that true? That must be really neat. Because to me, the world looks like what you think a TV show looks like. By the way, this is the shittiest TV show I've ever seen. Um, no, really, it's mostly, it's mostly, it's mostly Sue, really. Yeah. Um, uh, but, <laughs> I was hoping maybe it was vodka. Sun's over your arm somewhere, my son. Uh, speaking of Newfoundland. But yeah, uh, so I don't have those, like, I don't see in two or three, because but if those cells don't fire by the time they're about two years old, they die. Because it's maintaining them. Cell just maintaining a neuron that's just standing there going, I don't know, I'm just hanging out. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Right? It's kind of like when my wife says, why do we have all these TVs? I said, well, what if you have to watch TV in this room? She says, nobody watches TV in that room. She does TV. Well, I'm not doing that. TV's not even hooked up. Well, it could be. On the off chance, I want to watch four games at once. <laughs> but anyway, point is, cells die. Or they get, they can get used by something else, some other system. But usually they just die. So if they don't make connections, they die. And that's good. So it's, it's actually a good thing. We should, be we should be happy that that happens. It makes some things more difficult, like learning another language, for example. But it also uh, makes it so you are, you, your body's more efficient. You can grow new neurons in your central nervous system. It's just it's so few that we tell you you can't. You have billions of neurons, and you grow maybe 150 a day. That's not going to catch up to the ones that just die. So when you do, uh, there is some neurogenesis in adult humans, but it's very small. But there's some, and it's in hippocampus. And it probably has something to do with, 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 with consolidating memories, though. No one really, like, it probably does. I'll just stay there. It's just... This is something people get really excited about. They go, oh, you could reopen that. Like, what if, what, and you can change the, you can change G expression in a neuron. Yes, I know. We've known that forever, forever. For a very long time, people have known that you can change the way genes are expressed. 
because of environmental factors. People get really excited about that who don't understand biology. I mean, it's cool, don't misunderstand me. But people who don't understand biology think that all, biology, all biologists are biological determinants. We all walk around going, you are simply a product of your genetics. I, I don't literally know anyone like that. And I've never met anyone like that. And I don't mean I've never met anyone like that who's a biologist. I mean, I've never met anyone like that. It's a real strong man, and people often say, oh, you're just biological determinants. I, that who was, it was the impression up there, but well, I actually I do know who it is, and I'm not going to tell you because um, it actually isn't very good. It is an impression, it's not an impersonation. Uh, <laughs> some of these are just for me, and I'm really enjoying myself right now. Uh, point is that the idea that gene expression changes, which is all that means, is not surprising to you. How do you think? What do cells do? What does what cell nuclei do? What, what does DNA do? It makes proteins. It makes different proteins at different times. That's all that says. People get really worked up about that. You know, people get really excited about um, a lot of these kind of things. They, again, misunderstand biology, basically. Not that it's not cool. Okay. Okay. So, a couple things generally, axons and dendrites greatly increase the surface areas. Uh, you can have, there are cells, and you'll see some examples in a second, that have upwards of 10,000 other cells synapsing on the youth. That's a lot of dendrites. And then dendrites themselves are even bigger, bigger than the dendritic spines. So you get a main dendrite, then you've got little branches, little spines that come off, and that's where the connections are. Each cell has one axon, but the axon itself may have many little branches coming off of it. So it has one big trunk of an axon, but as we saw in that picture before, there are little uh, sprouts, I'll call it. Or uh, there's a Greek word, it's teleodendria, and it just means touching the dendrite. So this starts at the axon hillock. The axon hillock is the place where the axon meets the cell body. A hillock is a sort of old-timey English word that means hill. And I guess they didn't want to say axon hill because, I don't know. I don't know. I actually have no idea. That would have been better somehow. But axon hillock is really just where the axon meets the cell body. And the little dendrites, like little, little branches off the axon, those are called teleodendria, and that just means touching. Just go with touching the dendrite. That's close, close enough. All right. Questions? Nothing good? Questions? Yeah, no, no. Okay, good. So, at the end, of the axon is a terminal button. You'll hear sometimes people call that a bouton, and I have no idea why. Seriously, it's like, it says button. What's wrong with the word button? It's a little button. That's a perfectly good name. This connects to the next dendrite. Okay, uh, you should some often. Not all connections are axon to dendrite. We'll get there. 
Right now, they are. In about three weeks, they aren't. But right now, all connections go axon to dendrite, okay? There's six other kinds, but anyway. There's a little gap between axons and dendrites, and it's called a synapse. Synapse is a Greek word, it means gap. It literally is just a word that means gap. So when anybody ever says synaptic gap, they are being redundant. It's a gap gap. It's like when people have to go to an ATM machine. Or your car's VIN number. Car's VIN number, your SIN number, uh, HIV virus, you want to get a dark? Uh, what's the other one? CD disc? I don't think I've ever heard that one. Well, you're old enough to have heard when people would see these games. Uh, DVD disc is another one you'll hear. No. Digital video disc. Does it, is it a digital video disc disc? No. It's up there. The other one is fovea. The fovea, the part of your eye, the very back of your retina. And it, it's a Latin word and it means pit. And people will say foveal pit. And they're saying it's a pity pit. That's what they're going to say. Anyway. And there's a lot of things that really bother me. That's one of them. Um, it's a long freaking list. So information basically travels down from the dendrite through the axon to the next dendrite. So it's, we use words like circuit and wire, and those are analogies. And they're pretty decent analogies, but remember they're just analogies. This is not a purely electrical system up here. It's electrochemical, it doesn't operate the way electricity does. Though we talk about resistance, and we talk about circuits, and we talk about cells being on or off. So, but that's, remember, those are analogies. You gotta keep that in mind, okay? Okay. So we've got many different types of neurons. So I've got some examples here. So here we have a bipolar neuron. They have a short dendrite and a short axon. We have bipolar neurons in our eyes, for example. Okay? Like it's uh, in our retina. Um, and there's a sensory neuron, yeah, bipolar neuron, sensory neuron. It has many connections. It has more connections than a bipolar. Bipolar neurons, like basically one to one. You can see a sensory neuron's a lot, somatic sensory neuron, a lot more dendrites, one axon. The vast majority of the neurons in the human, in the human, are interneurons in almost all animals. Jeez, can I say all? Yeah, I think I can. I think I can say that the, the vast majority of all neurons in all animals are interneurons. So, for example, so when an interneuron is just simply not a sensory neuron and not a motor neuron. Motor neurons, synapse on your muscle, muscles, your muscles, they synapse on your muscles, they synapse on your muscles. And sensory neurons are from your sensory apparatus, whatever that sensory apparatus is. Most of it is the stuff in between. Right? So here's a couple, here's a few here. There's an association cell. If you look, uh, if you can see it here, or you can look if you've downloaded it. It's also sometimes called a stellate cell because it's like a star. Um, what these do, you look at all the look at all the dendrites. Look at all those dendrites. 
They're associate, they're called the association cell because they're associating stuff together. They're taking a lot of input together. Pyramidal cells are uh, pretty common in the, in the cortex. They're called pyramidal cells because they're vaguely shaped in a triangle. Uh, it looks more like a Christmas tree to me, but I guess to be more inclusive, we went with pyramidal cells. I think Christmas tree cell would have been great. Would have made somebody pretty mad, probably. But that's fine. You see a lot of those in the cortex, as it says here. Um, these are all interneurons. My favorite neuron, we all have a favorite, of course, is the Purkinje cell. Look at how many neurons, how many dendrites this guy has. These are in your cerebellum, and what they basically do is they mostly are in the GABA system. So they run on the neurotransmitter GABA, and one of the things that GABA, G-A-B-A, which stands for something, and we'll get there. But what GABA does is it, it, it's, it's inhibitory. It slows things down. So what this is doing is it's making your movements precise. Okay? Because if I'm going to, let's just try something, a very simple movement. If I'm going to just do this, touch my nose. Now you can tell I've not been drinking. So I do that. Now, it's possible that, my, that there are signals sending my arm too far this way and too far this way. Those cells are making sure that doesn't happen. They are making things accurate. They're inhibiting going that way and going that way, so I just go like that. Okay? So they're going to need a lot of connections, which, as you can see, And then finally here we have a motor neuron, so these are the kind of synapse on your legs or your arms or wherever, any muscle. And they again look a lot more, the motor neuron and the sensory neuron kind of look like what we think neurons look like. These other things really don't. <laughs> There's way more of all of these than there are of either of these. These are just easier to understand when we're teaching you about neurons at first. Like imagine if we showed you an association cell and say, yeah, there's lots of dendrites, man. Like, you'd be confused, so don't do that. Okay. Yeah, so the motor neuron snaps on the muscles, as I said. There. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about synapses. They're a very recent discovery. And by recent, I mean within the last uh, 130 years. So, I am sharing them, uh, figured out there must be a synapse. Which is a weird thing to realize, because like, why would you think that there'd be gaps? Remember, he doesn't have an electron microscope. He, this is like in the 1870s. He can't be looking super close at something. So, like we have to go today. So how does he figure this out? Well, a couple guys, Huxley and uh, Huntington, uh, figured out that the speed of nervous transmission, which is about 100 meters per second within a neuron, which they thought was slow, because it's a lot slower than light, but you know, they kept finding it, oh, it's 100 meters per second. So Sherrington's doing some work with dogs, spinal dogs. So what he does is he severs their spinal column. Don't get upset, it's 150 years ago, there's nobody to protest. This dog is long dead. Um, and 
what he would do is he would find a part, a part on, the, on the spinal column, stimulate it electrically, and the leg would move. And if he knows the rate, knows how what the distance is, and he knows the speed, how long should it take the leg to move? Right? Distance equals speed times time. Very simple stuff you learned a long time ago in school. And then he did that, and it was slow. It's like, it seems like it's only about 10 meters a second. What's going on? Why is it so slow? And this is where he reasoned out. He said, well, there's got to be, between each neuron, they aren't directly connected. There must be a gap between them where they send uh, chemicals across that gap. Like, that's pretty smart. I love things like that, where people just go, I bet. And I wonder how many days he walked around thinking, how the light's wrong with my equipment? Why is everything wrong? Oh, it's off by a factor of 10. Maybe I'm doing something wrong with my gear. And then he just said, I know what it must be. And he was right. Pretty impressive. So chemical messages are sending are sent across the synapse from one neuron to the next neuron. They can feed back too. So a neuron can feed back on itself. So you could get something like this. Well, we tend to think of connections going from that neuron A to neuron B. Let's go a little later on C. So C probably synapses on other stuff, but C can also synapse back onto A. So it can feed back onto itself. This should surprise us. This happens in all kinds of other situations. Uh, so like, uh, you know, electronics and computers, et cetera. So feedback mechanisms uh, are pretty common. So it isn't always just direct. It's not just this, then this, then this, then this. They're not like wires. But we call it, we call it, we call it wiring. We call it circuitry. Because it's the best analogy. Oops, let's get it right in there. So we have excitation and inhibition generally. So a synapse either, a connection is either excitatory or inhibitory. If it's excitatory, it, mean, it makes the next neuron more likely to fire. If it's inhibitory, it makes the next neuron less likely to fire, as you would expect. So, if you've got a lot of calculations here, the neuron itself is doing some very complicated calculations to determine if it should fire. So this is going to be better if I draw it on the board. Okay. So what I'll do, I'll do this schematically because I can't draw it very well. Um, Let's do it not entirely schematically. Okay, so that's that's part of a, a, a dendrite. I told you I can't draw it very well. Okay, now we can have excitatory or inhibitory connections. It looks like there was something wrong with Mickey Mouse. Three years, or maybe it's Homer Simpson, right? Two hands. So let's say that here we have an excitatory connection. So I'm going to I'm going to denote those with plus signs. Here to 
there. Let's put another one here. Okay. So those are all excitatory connections. The neuron's always trying to not fire. It's always trying to stay in a state where it's not fire. Okay? But every time one of these positive connections happens, it's a little more likely to fire. However, we also might have negative connections. So let's put some negatives in there. So now we have inhibition and excitation. Positive is an excitation, negative is inhibition. Just one connection isn't going to make this neuron fire. It's going to need lots of them to happen at roughly the same time. We call that the temporal window. It's like a window opens for a brief period and allows connections. And that brief period, we measure that in milliseconds. Like, it's quick. But there's also going to be inhibitory connections. So it's like the neuron is kind of taking a vote. Yes and no votes. <coughs> when I was a kid, during the space race, they used to be watched. Uh, and I don't care that you don't remember this. I love space things. And I'm just going to talk about it anyway. I don't care. Uh, during like the Apollo missions to the moon. My first really vivid memory is men landing on the moon with less computer power than I have in my hand. Anyway. And doing calculations with a pen and pencil in space. It's the coolest thing. When they would do that, they would always, when they made the determination they're gonna do something, there'd be a whole room of people in a room this size with great big computer terminals in front of them and brush cuts, smoking cigarettes, and they'd ask them, go or no go. So they'd say, for all the different stations, go, go, go. And if one person said no, if it was a, they would thought, do something. It's kind of like that. It's like they're taking a vote. So there's a temporal window. When they were in space, it was like, in the next couple of, you know, 30 seconds, we have to decide if we're going to fire the engines or not, because we're got to go to the moon. Here it's, are we going to fire the cell or not? Okay. So there's a temporal window, there's also a spatial window. So we have a bunch of positive connections here. But let's, and I'm just using this as an example, but if this one here fires, and this one here fires, and this one here gets fired all at the same time, they're probably so far apart that it doesn't matter. So there's a spatial window to you. Not just temporal, also a spatial window. Okay? So there's both temporal and spatial windows. So when a neuron is, is, is counting up the votes, it's not just counting up when the votes happen, it's counting where the votes coming from. And we'll talk when we talk about uh, neurotransmitters how this actually works. But for now, for our purposes at this point, I hope this was. Uh, Helpful. Any questions about uh, temporal and spatial summation and the window? So it's called temporal and spatial summation, and they happen during temporal and spatial windows. And it's a very short period of time. Like, this is happening like that quickly. 
It's to be measured in milliseconds. Okay. Let's talk a bit about glial cells. So we have uh, five different kinds of glial cells. Uh, the ependymal cell, this makes cerebral spinal fluid. These line the ventricles. Remember we saw the other day that little animation of the CSF going through the ventricles? Uh, these things are making that, those, making CSF. They line the in, inside the, of the ventricles of the brain. Astrocytes, they do nutrition, uh, support functions. Yeah, stuff like that. So they bring basically food to neurons. Microglia, that's these guys here. What they do uh, is they do defensive functions. They destroy invaders. Mostly they destroy dead neurons. They eat them. Because we can't just have dead, dead neurons floating around, so they get they get rid of them. And these things make up the blood-brain barrier. So we have this, like these glial cells, they make up the blood-brain barrier. So what happens in this case, so stuff can't get to your brain that's perhaps dangerous. This is one of my favorites because I, I always, I, I pronounce this differently every time I say it. It's one of those words, you know, you ever have a word you've only ever seen written down? You've never heard anybody say? Well, here's one for me. Oligodendroglial. You have all one. Um, I don't spell it. Just, uh, I should, should be easy, but it's long, I guess, that's why. The, these and Schwann cells together, what they do is they make up the myelin sheath. The Schwann cells make up the myelin sheath in the peripheral nervous system, right? And the O1s make up your myelin sheath in your central nervous system. They do the same thing. One is central, one's peripheral. And these are the things that, where tumors happen, basically. Uh, most brain tumors, I talked about this the other day, for people, for older people, are their glial cells that are growing too quickly. Cancer of glial cells. That. What glial cells do, as I say here, they kind of keep your brain running on time. Uh, they do they do repair functions. So here's an example. Let's say you get a deep cut. You might get a little paralysis even from a deep deep cut. We talked about this. I think maybe the second day of class. And I talked about how I, you know I've got parts of my thumbs that are completely numb because of cooking. Uh, well, chopping. Cooking. Uh, and some of you also mentioned you had parts of your skin, your knees, when you were a kid, or something, and your knees numb, whatever. Sure, all that. But if you get a deep cut, you get some paralysis and some numbness. The old axons die. So the axons where you that cut, they die, of course. So microglia and Schwann cells go into that pathway and they clear the way for a new neuron to sprout in that same place. So what they're doing basically is, oh, there's already a path. Let's clear the path so another neuron can come on and connect. That make sense? Pretty cool. 
and the neuron, that new neuron will sprout and then it'll look for that path. So that neuron may be a brand new neuron. In fact, it probably is a brand new neuron because it's a peripheral nervous system, you can grow new ones. In fact, it tries to happen in your central nervous system. And there's actually a chemical secret called no-go that makes it stop. So when no-go is released, it stops neural growth. Now you might think, why in the hell functionally? I, you know, causally, you cause and function. Causally, we got it. Functionally, like evolutionarily, what's the advantage of not growing new neurons in your central nervous system? Anybody have any thoughts? Like, I have a thought. Well, I don't, like, I mean, we don't know if this is correct or not. It's just a thought. Because my thought on this is these things are so complicated to rewire that if we did just grow new neurons and tried to spread where they all were, a mis mis too many mistakes would happen. So it's better to just seal off the injury, which is what basically happens. That's the best guess I've ever heard. But functionally, I'm not entirely sure why this happens. And it's too bad that it doesn't. And you might say, okay, in the brain, that's one thing. What about the spinal column? Those are actually pretty simple connections. And if we could get neurons in the spinal column to grow, people who broke their back would walk into you, like who had a seven spinal column, could walk. There's actually been some success blocking Nelgo and using uh, carbon nanotubes. So what you do is you use these tubes that are one atom thick, made out of carbon, uh, and you have the neuron spread, grow into there. And of course, no-go can't get through it because it's a tube. Even though it's a one atom thick tube, it's still a tube. There's been some success there. Uh, I would guess within an hour, so I'm including me here, which means that this will happen within the next oh, 20 years, I would say. Uh, I hope to live longer than 20 years. But my, my, as I was saying before class, my plan is to live forever, and so far it's working perfectly. Now, inductive reasoning has certain limits. Uh, but the point is, I think within about 20 years, I think maybe even earlier, people who get seven spinal columns will be able to walk again. I think that'll happen easily in your lifetimes, but I think it'll happen in, in my lifetime too. Not that you should go out and try to sever your spinal column. Well, that'll be fine. <laughs> but. I think, I think this will work out, I really do. That said, I've been seeing that for a long time. <laughs> okay, here's an old picture of us when we bought a Honda Element. But that's not the kind of element I mean. Let's see some of these people. He's 23. He's a neuropharmacologist. She's 30, has a PhD, teaches at Western. And that's us. That's 20, my God. That's a 20-year-old picture. Holy crap. Okay, so 
various elements are more or less important in your brain. So hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, really, we are living, breathing things. So these are important. Now, one of the interesting things here is though that things like nitrogen, like nitrous and nitric oxide can actually act as neurotransmitters. Uh, nitrous oxide can do all kinds of fun things. If you inhale a bunch of nitrous oxide, you're in for a really fun minute. But it's a fun minute. It's, you know, don't do it, okay? Don't do whippets the night before your PhD role. Somewhere there's a picture of me. There's a picture of me about seven hours before my PhD world, and I'm just sucking on a whipped cream can, getting high. Anyway, I have a misspent youth, we'll say that. And I was literally sitting with a friend of mine, and I said, you know what we should do? We went, yeah, let's go to the store. I, I, neither of us have ever done it before. Things you knew when you're 27. Um, I was 28. 28. Uh, so fine, all these things are obviously gonna be important because of us being living things. Calcium, boy, we'll talk a lot about calcium because the calcium current, calcium ions. Uh, pot uh, I always wanna say potassium. <laughs> it's not, it's phosphorus. Uh, but that's potassium and that's sulfur, that's sodium. Sodium, potassium, calcium are probably gonna be the biggest ones that we talk about because the regulation of levels of sodium and potassium and I, uh, did I not put up chlorine yet? Oh look, there it is. And chlorine are what regulate when neurons fire. And making, them, making those things change neurons is the responsibility of neurotransmitters, of these neurotransmitter molecules. Oh, sorry. Yeah, please. What was Na again? Sodium. Okay. Sodium. Uh, it's from the Latin nastrum green sodium. Anyway, point is, I'm not going to talk a lot about this. I started to bring it up because it will come up now and then. Let's look at some cell anatomy. There are parts here that you should have known in grade 10, so I'm not going to test you on them. You should know what an endoplasmic reticulum is and what it does. Because you learned it in high school. And if you didn't, I question where your biology teachers. Uh, one of the couple important things here, mitochondria, mitochondrion is one, mitochondria are many. Uh, they make ATP, ATP is what your cell runs on. And they make ATP out of glucose. So there are a lot of mitochondria in, you would imagine then, in neurons, because they're very power uh, consumption heavy. The key things for us here are the cell body, that's this part here. See over here we've got axons, and there's an axon here coming off, we've got dendrites coming off here. Uh, the axon helix on this guy, assuming this comes down to an axon right around here, it would be right where the axon starts. Mitochondria, intercellular fluid, not interesting. Nuclear membrane, not that interesting. The nucleus contains DNA, it contains your material uh, cell, that's important. But yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about the endoplasmic reticulum and the Golgi apparatus and all that stuff. These microtubules right here, this goes down further, but the diagram doesn't. 
Those microtubules carry neurotransmitter that is made in the nucleus by your, by your DNA. They carry them down to the end of the, of the uh, axon. Okay? about this, about genes and behavior. I'll talk about this now, and then we'll do the whole class next time we'll be on genes and behavior. But to introduce the idea, I have a, what I think is an incredibly pithy quote here from Donald Hebb, the founder, along with his PhD student, Brandon Miller, of behavioral neuroscience. They invented it. Before them, it didn't exist, and then it happened. It happened in Montreal, Quebec. Uh, in the Montreal Neurological <coughs> Institute, which, if you ever watch Canadian football, is in the west end zone of the stadium where the Montreal West play. Like, literally, it's right there. It's, it's, they look down into the end zone. Brenda told me one time that she liked, didn't like football that much, but it was fun to be able to look at her window and watch a game on a Saturday afternoon, which is kind of neat. Trying to determine how much of a behavior is due to genetics and how much is due to the environment is like trying to determine how much of an area of a field is caused by its length and how much is caused by its width. Uh, what that's saying is that you can't determine this. You can't have length without width. You can't have width without length. And as much as you might think, well, that's just a cute quote, it's actually a pretty good one. What this is saying is that the nature-nurture argument is a giant waste of your time. Oh, that's environmental. Oh, that's genetic. Oh, both of you don't know anything. Um, you've got genetics all over my environment, and it tastes delicious. None of you have seen that commercial from the 1970s about Reese's peanut butter cups, except Sue probably. <laughs> Sue's laughing. Uh, but yeah, so the point is, what this is saying is that it is funny. What this is saying is that you can't have one without the other. Like, think about this. Okay, we can determine heritability. A lot of you probably heard about heritability. Like, so things can be heritable. Like, for example, human height is about 0.8 heritable. Now, I know what that means. So I have no problem saying, yeah, it's 80% heritable. That doesn't mean that up to here, is my genes, and from here on was my mom and my dad. Not their genes, just how nice they were around the house. <laughs> how they bought me books or something, I don't know. It doesn't mean that 80% of your height is caused by the environment and 20, or sorry, by genes, and 20% is caused by the environment. It means that 80% of the variance in human height is accounting overlaps with variants in genetic material. Those are different things. Things can be 100% heritable and 100% changeable. So I could give you a complicated one about 
certain genetic disorders that as long as you get the right diet, you're fine. And I'll do that in a sec, but let's do a simple one. Hair color. It is heritable, pretty much 100%. You know what else? You can change your hair color. It's just a thing. Eye color, wear contact lenses that are colored. Hey, look, you have different colored eyes. Now, let's think of something you're thinking, oh, Dave, those are bad examples. Fine. How about the genetic disorder PKU? PKU is a disorder that what used to be the number one cause of cognitive, uh, I, sugar. There's a word I shouldn't use, so I'm not going to use it. Disability, let's go with that. Of cognitive disabilities, the number one reason used to be PKU, and it's not anymore. PKU is a disorder that's completely heritable. The heritability is 1.0. It's 100% heritable. You can't catch PKU from anybody, and you can't get it from the environment. You get it from your parents having the gene. Okay, PKU just means that you can't metabolize the amino acid phenylalanine. It's phenylalanine, or is it phenylphthalein? It's one of the phenyl ones. And the problem with that is that a lot of food has that in it. And when you can't metabolize it, it would just build up deposits in your central nervous system and destroy your brain. So it was a pretty big cause of cognitive disabilities, as you could imagine. But then they found a test for it that's 100% accurate. And now when you have a baby, you go to the hospital, and they do a blood test. And it's a tw and 24 hours. There's a reason you have to stay in the hospital for 24 hours after you've had a baby, as much as you want to leave right away. I know when our son was born, my wife was like, can I just go? I don't think it works like that. After the daughter was born, which took 60 hours, I think it was more like, I would like to sleep. But when John was born, it was like, I just, I just want to go home. And they said, no, well, you'd have to come back anyway. <laughs> what they do is, the, one of the first things they do is they take your kid and they give them a blood test or her a blood test and they do it on their feet. So they, some, they poke a little pin in their feet. They take some blood, poor kid. That must be, it's so nice we can't remember our birth, right? Because like, imagine that. It's like, I'm comfortable, this is great. Oh my God, <laughs> what's going on? It's freezing out here. So you scream, but you can't say anything. And you're kind of stupid, because you're a baby. And then it's like, okay, they, they're holding me. I've had something to eat. Oh, I just shit myself. Well, that's interesting. That used to just come out of here. Oh, now someone's poking me in the foot. Anyway, they poke you in the foot, they take some blood, and it's a very simple test. And 24 hours later, almost always they come back and they say, you're, you've got a healthy baby, everything's great. But now and then, they'll come back and say, your kid has a disease called PKU, don't worry, it's totally controllable. Never feed him or her the following foods. And they grow up with an IQ of average of 100 to standard deviation of 15. It's totally normal. It's that's something that's completely heritable and completely changeable. So just because somebody says something is 100% heritable, doesn't mean it's not changeable. Human IQ, or your IQ score, is about 60% heritable. People don't like to hear that, it's true. Um, but that doesn't mean that, 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 that someone who has parents that aren't that bright doesn't become 
the person who discovers the, the COVID vaccine. I'm not saying that, well, then who discovered the COVID vaccine? Uh, or we, people, a lot of people over What I'm saying is that it's not biological determinism, right? This is a dumb argument. It's literally a waste of time. People have wasted entire careers complaining about these things. They always work together. The biology students in the room were like, yeah, I know, it's the interaction principle. Yes, you're right. Uh, a lot of psychology people you know, oftentimes get a little bit weird, weirded up by this. It's like, what do you mean? Well, because some things, that's just, because that's how the world works. You can't have an environment without genes around. Well, you can, but there's nothing in it. You can't have genes without an environment, right? Because you can't just have living things without anything around them, no environment. That's not a thing. It's literally impossible. It's a logical impossibility. Right? So I, just, I want you to keep this in mind because to me it's a, I think it's, it's a very important uh, point and it gets lost on a lot of people. Now, can we say things are terrible? Yes. I just did a few times. But that just says that the genetic variation overlaps with the, whatever the characteristic is, with its variation. The other thing I think it gets, people get caught up in is, I will then say, statistically, because I talk like I'm in statistics, that this variance explains that variance. When I say that, I just mean they overlap. The problem is people don't know what I mean by explain in that case. There's a real problem that sometimes words, technical terms mean something in a technical field, very specific, and in the general public it means something else, like the word theory. Right, so you know people say, well, it's just a theory. Gravity is just a theory, but there's gravity. Right? Evolution's a theory, but it's a thing. So it's that kind of thing, you just keep that in mind. So, uh, right, any questions on this? This is actually a perfectly great place to stop people as a touch early. Uh, you don't look too concerned. So I once had somebody complain, and I said, this is back in Newfoundland, and we got done in two hours and a half instead of three hours. And she said, I paid for three hours. And I said, I will speak very slowly. She dropped the class. Anyway, <laughs> thanks everybody.
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore, and that was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to... Uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music, because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.